To get your free audio gift, The Three Pillars of Achieving Your Perfect Weight Using the Mind-Body Connection, go to healthymindfitbody.com and enter your first name and email address, and we'll send that to you right away. Welcome, everyone, to episode 25 of Healthy Mind Fit Body Podcast. This is Wes, and I have Kevin on the other line. Hey, Kev. Hey, Wes. And we also have a special guest today, Mark Sisson. Let's give a little background about Mark. He excelled at cross-country and distance track events in high school and at Williams College, where he was a pre-med candidate and received his degree in biology. Since running was his passion, Mark decided to train seriously as a marathoner, racking up well over 100 miles each week in training. The effort culminated in a top five finish in the 1980 U.S. National Marathon Championships and a qualifying spot for the 1980 U.S. Olympic Trials. Unfortunately, by then the inhuman amount of training and weekly racing was taking its toll and he found himself constantly sick or injured. That's when he started exploring nutrition and supplementation as a way to enhance his performance, support his damaged body, and bolster his immune system. Despite his running injuries, Mark spent a few more years racing triathlons, including finishing fourth place at the Hawaii Ironman, the biggest in the world at the time. He finally retired from competition in 1988 and decided he would do whatever he could to help others avoid making the kinds of health mistakes that he had made. Mark has written several books, including Maximum Results, The Fat Control System, The Anti-Aging Report, The Lean Lifestyle Program, and most recently, The Primal Blueprint. At the end of 2006, he decided to jump into the blogosphere to help foster compelling, critical, and enjoyable health discussions. Currently, his mission is to empower people to take full responsibility for their own health and enjoyment of life by investigating, discussing, and critically rethinking everything we've assumed to be true about health and wellness. His blog is marksdailyapple.com, and his other sites are primalblueprint.com and primalnutrition.com, and of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Mark Sisson. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on the show. I was just looking at your site over the last week, and uh, I come from an endurance sports background. I was a swimmer, and I still swim a lot, and I do running. I do half marathons and stuff like that. And after reading some of the blog posts that you have, I was so excited that I just started thinking of how much time I could save by doing the sprint workouts and the, and the shorter stuff. And I actually went down to the beach and did a bunch of sprints just to, just to see how it feels. <laughs> And how did it feel? Great. I mean, it's fun. You know, it's like, I feel like I can have fun now. It's, uh, you know, not that I don't like the long distance stuff, but it's just, um, you know, this is a whole new thing to me. Yeah. No, I mean, I coined a phrase a few years ago, chronic cardio, and it describes this uh, propensity that people who are into endurance training and, and endurance racing have that somehow has them getting out there every day, slogging out mile after mile, watching the calories mount up on the treadmill. Um, keeping their heart rates in a 75 to 90% of the max zone for hours at a time, day in and day out. And it's what I discovered from my own experience starting 30 years ago as an endurance athlete was that it's antithetical to health. Yeah, it, you can you can probably race faster um, at the elite, elite, elite level if you do that sort of activity, but it comes with a cost. And that cost is, in my case, was arthritis in my feet and tendonitis in my hips and upper respiratory tract infections five or six times a year and seasonal allergies and irritable bowel syndrome and a bunch of other maladies that, you know, eventually cost me my career. And 
and it almost cost me my sanity. When I put together the primal blueprint, one of the main ingredients, one of the main motivators for me was how can I have the most amount of results, good results in terms of health and fitness, with the least amount of work, pain, suffering, sacrifice, effort, discipline, calorie counting, portion control, and all of those negatives that we associate with somehow being required to achieve health and fitness. My goal was to figure out the quickest path to being healthy and fit, lean, strong, happy, uh, never get sick, and to do that with enjoyment. And uh, as you may have seen with your recent reading of my website and with your experience with the beach sprints, um, it is possible that you can race very, very well on fewer mileage provided you just break the workouts up in a different pattern. Yeah, and that's more like what humans are designed to be doing, not on the, quote, dead mill for hours and hours and training. <laughs> and I guess you could look at the elite uh, athletes and what we see with the racing, like the Tour de France and so forth. You end up with a group of people that um, are kind of freaks genetically. They're able to basically punish themselves for days and days on end and still retain some semblance of health. However, for most people and most athletes, it's really kind of a damaging way to live, isn't it? Uh, that's absolutely correct. And I would argue that uh, Tour de France athletes at the end of the tour are very, very ill. Uh, you know, their muscles have cannibalized themselves over those two weeks. Uh, they've, in many cases, had to use artificial enhancing substances to just stay upright on the bike. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, typically they'll take weeks to recover from that effort because it is so devastating to health. And what we see is that in the general population, there's a large group of people who, who would like to be living the life of an elite athlete and are really kind of caught up in the whole human performance movement and wanting to extract the most out of their bodies. And the question I ask is, okay, what do you really want? If you're doing this Ironman training or this marathon training or this century bike training, if you're doing this as part of an anti-aging strategy or as part of a, a longevity strategy, um, it's not going to work because it, that type of training is antithetical to health and longevity. If you're doing it to extract more out of your current life and you want to feel good about yourself and you want to you know, maybe carve another notch in your belt and have a couple of more personal accomplishments, then I'm all in support of that. But I just don't want people to go into this blindly and think that, well, the more miles I put in there, the healthier I will be because that's not accurate. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I deal with triathletes a lot with my other business and uh, I sometimes wonder what the what the actual goal is. But for me, it's like the swimming workouts. I do the like one hour swim workouts and it does feel really good afterwards. So I think that's what people are getting out of it, out of the, the distance stuff is that just the kind of that feeling of the, the high that you get after the workout. Interesting, because um, I, I would agree with that. And I would say that I've put together some 12 and 17 minute workouts that will give you the same kind of feeling of a post-workout high, but not leave you drained because you spend an hour or in some cases two hours in the pool or on the roads. Um, but in fact, will leave you energized because you did just enough work to prompt some gene expression changes in the muscle and to grow stronger and to grow leaner um, and to produce a little bit more human growth hormone, a little bit more testosterone, a little bit less cortisol, all in a very short span of time. And now you can take the 45 minutes that you saved and go do something productive with the rest of your life. Wow. Yeah, I can't wait to get your book. <laughs> I'm going to start this. So you've definitely got some non-mainstream ideas about fitness and nutrition, as do we. 
how did you go from being the high endurance, high carb athlete to going low carb and then just spending, like you said, a few minutes a day on exercise? Well, the number one thing was uh, I got so injured and ill from both the training regimen and the diet because the diet is a very highly inflammatory diet. That is a high carbohydrate grain based diet that feeds most endurance athletes is again, antithetical to health. It, it may provide the calories to enable you to go out every day and hammer hard, but ultimately it's raising inflammation throughout the body. It's causing a tendency toward insulin resistance. Uh, it's suppressing the immune system. It's doing a lot of things that again, are antithetical to health. So when I literally had to retire from competition because I couldn't do it anymore, uh, and I said, as we say on the West Coast here, uh, the girls all say, I'm over it. You know, I was over it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, decided that, you know, after 300 endurance contests over my lifetime, I didn't need to go out and prove myself anymore. My next epiphany was basically what I said, which is, you know, I want to look fit. I don't want to be fit. I just want to, I want the least amount of pain, suffering, sacrifice, and discipline and the most amount of results. And how can I do that? And that really led me into this 30-year process of discovery which combines evolutionary biology with modern genetic science. And all it does is identify the signals that turn on the genes that build muscle, that turn off the genes that store fat, that turn on the genes that improve the immune system, that turn off the genes that increase inflammation. It's really all about controlling or what I say reprogramming your genes to achieve that lean, fit, healthy, happy, sexy, productive body that we all want. Yeah, it's really a win-win scenario. Um, I really like the name of it, the Primal Blueprint. How does that differ or does it differ from, say, the paleo diet, which is kind of more, uh, you hear about that more in articles and so forth? Yeah. Um, first of all, the Primal Blueprint is a complete lifestyle. So when, when you read my book, you'll see there are 10 lifestyle laws, and they, they include diet and exercise and sleep and sun exposure and the amount of water that you drink or don't drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of play time that you allocate yourself using your brain. It's really a full-on comprehensive life strategy that is the primal blueprint. Very holistic. Yeah, paleo is pretty much a diet program, and there are tremendous parallels between the eating strategy that I outline in the primal blueprint and the paleo diet, which Lauren Cordain kind of pioneered and has been the leader in that movement. The differences are that um, I think Cordain is still quite afraid of saturated fat, and I, having done the research, I think saturated fat is not to be feared at all, and so I include a lot of saturated fat in the Primal Blueprint eating strategy. Yeah, I noticed that. That's that's really good. We've covered saturated fat, the myths about that in previous podcasts, yeah, too. Yeah. So, you know, and beyond that, I think we both agree that grains are uh, probably the, the biggest mistake in the history of humanity, and there are a lot of people who assume erroneously that grains ought to be the foundation of everyone's diet when in fact in my estimation and certainly in that of the paleo wave that grains ought to be eliminated entirely from the diet so there are those similarities but the bottom line is that the primal blueprint is really a comprehensive lifestyle and in fact you know it's interesting that a lot of people will try and eat primally but then they won't exercise primally and if you try and eat primally and cut way way back on your carbohydrates and increase the amount of fat and then you continue to exercise according to conventional wisdom, which is to go out and hammer the pavement for hours at a time, you'll get yourself in trouble because the whole concept of the primal blueprint is that the lifestyle elements all work together. So if you eat the way 
we suggest you eat, then you probably ought to be exercising the way we suggest you exercise because they go hand in hand. The eating strategy provides a certain type of fuel for the very specific exercise strategies that we outline. And I'll give an example. Um, you know, I'm not opposed to cardio activity. It's just that I don't like that mid-range chronic cardio or your heart rate is 80%, 85% of your maximum. I much prefer that people go out, do a lot of walking, a lot of hiking, a lot of slow cycling where their heart rate is at 70% of their max or lower because at that point you are starting to burn primarily most of the fats that either came from your diet because it's a high-fat diet or that came from your stored body fat, which we're all trying to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Well, if you eat a high-fat diet and cut the carbs, but you continue to go out and hammer the miles, the old training style, where it's putting in lots of miles at, at a high heart rate, you'll quickly whip through your glycogen stores and you won't have reprogrammed yet your genes to extract more energy from your fat cells and you'll basically bonk. You know, you'll have a sugar crash and then you'll go home and you'll crave more sugars and you'll sort of perpetuate that glycogen burning pathway that we want to try and, and get away from if we're really trying to maximize our health. Yeah, it's almost as if the mainstream, the nutritionists and dietitians and, and fitness gurus, uh, in order to deal with the problem that was created by advocating the high-carb, low-fat diet, in order to deal with all the fat that's gained in that process, their prescription was just this extensive amount of cardio to try to burn that fat off that the diet itself has caused, right? It's what I call digging a hole to put the ladder in to wash the basement windows. There you they've go. Over, <laughs> they've overthought this. And so you're right. In order to justify all the excess calories, particularly the carbohydrate calories, which carbohydrates, you know, there is no requirement in human nutrition for carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. There is no dietary requirement. It's, if you think about it, you know, you go five weeks without protein, you'll die. You go, you know, five weeks without fat, you'll die. But you can live your entire life without ever eating carbohydrate. The body makes enough glucose on its own to fuel the brain and the heart and whatever is necessary for the short bursts of speed that the muscles require. But for the most part, the human organism is well adapted to derive most of its energy from fat, either from a high-fat diet, which is what our ancestors maintained for quite some time, 2 million years, or whether it's from stored body fat that many of us have to lose. And it is ironic that the more grain we eat, the more exercise it takes to burn it off. And yet it doesn't seem to work. I mean, I know both of you guys go to the gym and you see the same people walking into the gym every day. They get on the treadmill, they start huffing and puffing and sweating and sneezing and wheezing. And they watch that calorie count on the LED climb up to 500 or 600. And four years later, they still have 25 pounds to lose. Yeah. yeah, and I was always amazed at seeing people at marathons that are all shapes and sizes. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you say all shapes and sizes. I say, yeah, there are very few of them that are actually lean. Most <laughs> yeah, exactly. people at the, at the popular marathons these days are quite overweight and are doing the marathon because they think that it's a strategy to lose the weight. But that kind of training, for the most part, if done the way conventional wisdom has suggested over the years, that type of training, all it does is increase your appetite. So it's a tough, tough situation to be in, to be overweight, to be out there you know, trying to burn off fat when in fact all you're burning off is stored glycogen and then getting home and having your brain screaming out to replace the lost carbohydrate with more carbohydrate. And of course, the body converts extra carbohydrate into stored fat and the extra carbohydrate that you eat raises insulin and locks the fat into the fat cell so it can't get out anyway. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just a, it's a sad, frustrating situation that, you know, one of my missions here is to grab the world by the lapels and shake it up and say, listen, this has just not been working for 20, 30, 40 years. <laughs> we've been getting fatter. We've been exercising more. And look at us. We're just, it's just not working. And the reason it's not working is you haven't identified exactly how the human body works and what signals the genes best respond to. And it's, you know, as I keep coming back to it, it responds to the signals that it expects. Our genes expect us to be lean, fit, happy, and healthy. Our genes evolved over 2 million years to be a recipe for a robust, healthy, fit human being. And it depends on environmental signals. Our genes depend on environmental signals to make those proteins, to turn those on-off switches, and we're the ones who guide those signals by what we eat, by what we think, by the air we surround ourselves with, by the, the foods we eat or the supplements we take. All of those things in impact whether those genes turn on or off. Yeah, and uh, given that you noted that 80% of body composition is determined by diet, what do you think of the fat acceptance movement and people kind of just resigning themselves to a certain body type? Uh, it has its good and bad points. I'm not thrilled that some morbidly obese people would love to say, you know, please accept me for what I am. There's nothing I can do about it. And here I am. Uh, I think that that's wrong. On the other hand, I would suggest, I mean, I did an article a few years ago about Oprah and she hit 200 pounds again. And in the article I said, look, Oprah, maybe her weight isn't 127. Maybe she never needs to get there and it's too much work for her to get there. Maybe 152 is Oprah's weight. You know, maybe she'd be happy and healthy and she could settle into a comfortable life there where she doesn't have to deprive herself and she doesn't have to beat herself up and feel guilty. And even though 152, some people would consider that, you know, slightly heavy for a woman her size. Hey, it ain't 200. So on the one hand, the fat acceptance movement is some people are trying to allow themselves the leeway to stay at 375 pounds. On the other hand, I'm not saying that every woman needs to be 108 pounds or every guy needs to be, you know, 8% body fat. Maybe maybe 15% body fat on a guy who's got a job and a family and who's otherwise eating properly and doing enough exercise to stay reasonably fit and healthy. Maybe that's perfect for him. You know, if he wants to get down to 8% body fat, it's going to take more work. It's going to take more effort. And maybe at some point, it's just a, a value judgment he makes or she makes to say, well, you know, I'm great where I am right now. I know I'm eating right. I know I'm healthy. And if I wanted to drop another 5% body fat, you know, I know I got to kick it up a notch, but hey, I love myself for who I am right here. My wife loves me or my husband loves me. That's the kind of acceptance that I'm working toward. Does that make sense? Yeah, that self-acceptance is so key. We've covered that quite a bit on this show. It's because you can't get to where you want to be if you don't first acknowledge and accept and kind of own where you are now. Right. Mm -hmm if you're always living in self-conflict. And I guess it just bears on the nutritional information. Most people lack that, for one. And if you look at Paleolithic humans, it doesn't seem from the evidence that any of them were really overweight and certainly not obese, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's quite unlikely unless, until we get to the time where grains come on the scene about 10,000 years ago and this excess amount of calories. But for most of human existence, it was a hand-to-mouth existence. And it was almost impossible for a hunter-gatherer to become obese. I mean, they could put on a, you know, a little bit of a spare tire if they came across uh, at the end of summer, uh, going into the winter season, and when fruit was abundant, and they started 
eating a little bit more of the fructose, which converts to fat more readily. And there's a certainly a, a survival rationale for that happening, mm-hmm. for sure. But the concept of an obese hunter-gatherer, it's just, it's almost impossible. On the other hand, I was thinking some of the more barbaric tribes might see an obese person and uh, have them for dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, so there was that other aspect of selection, which was it was probably uh, not wise to become obese because you, you could be considered some other tribe's uh, feast. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And what about the intermittent fasting? You've talked about that, IF. Could you share some insights about that process? Because obviously, Paleolithic humans went sometimes days without eating anything, right? Yeah, the human body is set up to, as Art Devaney likes to explain it, to eat fractally, which is sporadically, intermittently, whatever the term you want to use, which simply means that, again, conventional wisdom has suggested that we ought to be eating not just three square meals a day, but recent conventional wisdom, which again ties into this high-carbohydrate diet notion, suggests that we ought to eat small meals five or six times a day. Well, that's ridiculous because no human in the history of the two million years of evolution up until about a few hundred years ago would ever have eaten multiple small meals throughout the day, just from a matter of practicality and access. But the intermittent fasting emulates what a hunter-gatherer might have gone through to kind of reset the insulin sensitivities, to uh, tap into fat stores, to conserve energy in some regards with respect to cell turnover and repair. Mm-hmm. A lot of people use IF as a means of losing that extra couple of pounds of fat because it's a great way to restrict calories. Uh, other people do it for the anti-aging benefits that there's a lot of research that shows that when you go into an intermittent fast, that the cells tend to use excess proteins for their repair. And there's a, a whole process of repair that takes place under those conditions that does not take place when food is abundant and the cell thinks, eh, I don't need to repair it. I'll just, I'll just throw it out and start a new one. You know, I'll just divide and use up one of my lives. Yeah, um, yeah. that kind of relates to the uh, one of my friends is on a diet, uh, calorie restriction, optimal nutrition. Yeah. And, it, you know, the evidence that shows that restricting calories, like maybe a third or uh, at least a quarter, yields more longevity. I'm working on a post about that right now because it's interesting that, um, yes, it's true that most anti-aging research that's looked across a wide range of strategies for increasing lifespan in mammals, it all comes back to the only one that's ever really been significantly demonstrated to be effective is calorie restriction. Um, And on the other hand, I have to say, dude, I I enjoy my life. I love food. I don't want to artificially restrict my calories. Exactly. I see what some some of these guys are restricting them by 60%, and they look terrible. I have to say, they look look like concentration camp victims. They look like concentration camp victims. Yeah, and their life sucks because they're not enjoying food. They're not enjoying food, and they'll claim they will. But So in between the extremes of somebody who's obese and has not long to live and somebody who's aggressively going after the calorie restriction, I think you find the primal slash paleo style of eating, which suggests that if you cut the carbohydrates out and reduce the amount of insulin you secrete, you achieve many of the same benefits that the calorie restriction people achieve. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the theories about calorie restriction have to do with a reduction in insulin and insulin-related hormones. Mm -hmm. And because throughout all of the mammal kingdom, it's quite clear that individuals within a species that secrete the least amount of insulin live the longest. The more insulin you secrete, the less 
you will live in terms of overall lifespan. And that's been shown throughout all of the mammal kingdom. So one of the things that may be going on with calorie restriction is that you reduce insulin. Well, I'm suggesting that when you eat the way we eat in the primal blueprint, which is all contemplated to reduce insulin, one of the things that happens is that you don't, you don't get hungry as often. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. I've read you know, people that, well, wait a minute, if you don't get hungry, then you know, isn't that a bad thing? You know, the body is a great feedback loop. And if I am hungry, I'll eat. But if I'm not hungry, I don't force it upon myself. Mm-hmm. And when you reprogram your genes to burn fat preferentially, as we do in the primal blueprint, when you reprogram your body to rely on stored body fat when you don't have food in front of you, uh, you find some days you wake, like I'll wake up and I'll you know, go about my day and start answering emails. And the next thing I look up, it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I haven't eaten and it didn't matter because my blood sugar didn't dip. I didn't get moody or depressed or whatever. I didn't get frantic because, oh my God, I'm going to tap into my muscle stores and I'm going to waste away and lose all my hard fought muscle. None of that happened because it's all taken place within the reprogramming of how I eat and how I choose to exercise. And it has allowed me that luxury of not having to get hungry. And ultimately, people who go into this style of eating almost voluntarily reduce the amount of calories they take in and yet still feel full and still feel satisfied at every meal. And so there's an element of calorie restriction. A long-winded story cut a little bit short here is that one of the benefits of the Primal Blueprint eating style is I think you get the benefits of calorie restriction without the pain, suffering, sacrifice, and all of the calorie counting and all the crap that they have to go through to maintain it. It just happens naturally with primal or paleo style eating when you do it right. Yeah, yeah and I don't think the, the calorie restriction crowd really focuses on macronutrient constitution. So they are probably eating the high carb, low fat, just less calories of it. Bingo. They're still eating. They're still doing that kind of 60% of all of, of whatever it is, the 1,200 calories now that they're taking in a day. 60% of it's coming from carbohydrates yeah. wow. because that's what they think they need to fuel their brains. Because they're focused on fat as, you know, having twice as many calories per gram, nine calories per gram. Correct. You got to avoid that now. It's still a low fat, high carb, moderate protein because a lot of these calorie restriction folks are afraid of protein for some reason in amounts greater than, say, 40 grams a day. Yeah. Now, why do you think that people are so attracted to the processed foods like the cookies and crackers and chips, even though your, uh, your character there, Grok, never ate that stuff? Look, if Grok had had access to, you know, a Piggly Wiggly or a supermarket or any roadside stand. Bucks of Twinkies. <laughs> he would have gone straight for the Twinkies. Yeah. Make no mistake. Our brains are wired to seek out those kinds of foods that have sweetness, that are sugary and carbohydrate laden. But with the caveat that for 2 million years, the likelihood of you ever finding more than 100 calories at a time of a sweet sourced food was minimal. Uh, The brain is wired to look for sweet foods because one of the things about sweet foods is that they're almost invariably non-poisonous. You know, one of the things that Grok had to do, my prototypical 10,000-year-old or 40,000-year-old ancestor, was he had to be careful about new sources of vegetation because what if it's poison? I mean, you know, you can die from eating a poisonous berry or from eating a poisonous plant. Well, one of the best things about sweet foods is that almost invariably they are non-toxic, non-poisonous. So if grok had happened across a, a sweet new berry or a sweet new fruit, by the way, none of which would bear any resemblance to the gigantic over-sugared produce that you find today and anywhere in any grocery yeah. store. 
the giant cloned bananas, right? <laughs> I mean, I had a strawberry the other day that was as big as an orange. I could not believe it. Yeah. Uh, but that's how they grow them, and that's you know that was never an issue for Grok. And then you know, people talk about well, Grok eat honey once in a while. Well, you know, if he was willing to get past the bees and dig into a store of honey, that was probably a good thing. But it wasn't something he lived on every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we unfortunately, our brains are hardwired to seek out sweet foods. The other unfortunate part of that is that they're so abundant right now that our brains don't know when to turn that off. Yeah, I like the fact that you pointed out that fruits, as you say, are not toxic because the plant itself wants you to eat that and not digest the seed, but rather excrete it somewhere else so the plant can thrive, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, plants, Mm -hmm. yeah, Michael Pollan in uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, you know, he has a great allegory almost. Uh, People say, well, you know, humans used corn to exploit the far regions of the world. And Pollen says it's the other way around. What if corn used humans to exploit all of these regions of the world? I mean, at one point, corn only grew in Central America. And now corn is grown throughout the world because man has taken it to all parts of the world. So apart from trying to anthropomorphize corn and give it a brain, in pure survival of the fittest terms and pure Darwinian evolution, you could argue that corn used man to exploit every corner of the earth. And of yeah. course, the corn they're using today to fatten up cattle with is not the maize that was in Mesoamerica either. It's really kind of toxic for those animals. And that's why, you know, the meats that you see, typically you want to gravitate to the grass-fed beef and grass-fed buffalo. And grasses are the main nutrients for those herbivores, right? Not the, the excess corn and so forth. Oh, absolutely. The reliance of the beef industry on corn has created these fast-growing cows that mature or are ready to be slaughtered in half the time that they would be on a normal diet of grass. And ironically, they're slaughtered just before they're too sick to continue to survive because the corn is such a, again, it's so antithetical to their natural diet that that's why we have to give, say we, that's why they have to give beef cattle antibiotics. You know, there's so much going on with their diets that is causing them to be ill that their whole goal is to keep them alive just long enough to reach the age of slaughter. I mean, it's really quite perverse. Yeah, and maybe that's why the doctors have to give uh, overweight people statins. (laughs) Same, Same concept, yeah. Yeah, with the grains that we're eating, basically, because I love this quote of yours, governmental endorsements are not points in your favor, grain eater. They are strikes against you. An appeal to authority, unless that, quote, authority is actually a preponderance of scientific evidence, of course, does not an effective argument make. Conventional wisdom requires consistent, steady dissection and criticism if it is to be of any value. So many people look to, quote, authorities to tell them what to do and how to eat, even though it's obvious that something is amiss in their advice. How important do you think self-responsibility is in one's own health and longevity in this regard? Well, I mean, never, never in the history of humanity has it been more appropriate to take personal responsibility for your health than right now in light of what's going on in Congress with this uh, health care bill. Clearly, you're on your own, <laughs> you know, because the men in the, in the white coats, the doctors and the health officials and the governmental officials that are making public policy, it's become such a mishmash of pseudoscience combined with special interest groups that have all sorts of reasons to, you know, curry favor with governmental agencies. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, obviously the drug companies want to continue to be selling a expanding market, uh, greater and greater amounts of drugs. Um, the grain industry wants support of the government to continue to grow grain and subsidize the growth of grain to feed the cattle. The cattle industry, you know, wants to continue as well. It's so difficult for the individual now to sit back and identify what the best course of action is for him or her. You mean you don't recommend the uh, USRDA food pyramid? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, but it's a perfect example of a, a combination of a government committee that didn't know what it was doing, backed up by special interest groups. You know, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture is, you know, is a, uh, is a lobbying group for agriculture. They have U.S. farmers at their, they're their primary constituents. So certainly they have to incorporate into this food pyramid all of their constituents. And that's why grains at 6 to 11 servings a day are highly recommended as the base of the U.S. food pyramid. And, and everyone should, you know, somehow agree that that's what they need to consume to be healthy. Well, as we know now, nothing could be further from the truth. And yet for 50 years, that has kind of led the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so taking personal responsibility is my biggest point that I want to make to anyone who, who's interested. And that is when you understand a little bit about how the human body works and about how evolution got us to where we are, and you learn a little bit about the science, a little bit about what's out there and what's available, it almost becomes intuitive to understand what you should or should not be eating. It almost becomes intuitive as to the types of exercise you should or should not be doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's really what I want people to, I don't want people to think that they have to get a degree in science to understand all this stuff. Um, but by the same token, I don't want them to just, you know, go to their next door neighbor who's a multi-level marketing guru and, and think that that person has all of the, uh, the health information in their brochures, you know, <laughs> by the same token. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm really curious. Uh, I've been on a crusade to try to get the endurance, uh, at least the swimming world and triathlon world, to understand that carbo loading is uh, a bunch of bunk and it's kind of a thing of the past. Now, what do you think the odds are that we're going to convince people in the endurance sports world that they don't need to carbo load and they can eat fat and it's all good? You know, I've got people now who are doing that, and pretty good ones. I mean, Simon Whitfield, who was a gold medalist in the triathlon in Sydney and um, a silver medalist in Beijing, uh, has adopted a lot of the primal strategies in both his diet and his training. Uh, we just had a, a major piece on our website on Mark's Daily Apple a few days ago by Jonas Colting, who's yeah. one of the preeminent ultra-endurance athletes in the world, who tries to live a primal lifestyle and a primal diet. It's very possible that the next wave of elite athletes will incorporate this kind of training because it really comes down to how much fat can you access as an energy source during intense endurance activities. And when you train your body to access more fat in your training, and then you get into a race where you can now, instead of deriving 7% of your total calories from fat during the race, you can derive 30% of your calories from fat or more. Uh, then it's simply a matter of carbohydrate feeding during the race itself. You certainly will continue to require straight shots of glucose during the race itself, but the diet for the training and for everything leading up to the race could certainly be a high-fat diet and a low-carb diet and not involve the traditional carbohydrate loading. In fact, there's a whole body of work right now that looks at what we call train low, race high, and that has to do with the word glycogen, train under low glycogen states and race under high glycogen states. Hmm. 
Yeah. The glycogen stores being in the muscle groups? Yes. And, and that may be the next you know, area of improvement for endurance athletes. But it's a huge commitment. It's a giant commitment because it takes, I've worked with a couple of athletes, it takes about five or six months to make the transition from that carbohydrate-based program to that fat-based program. And you have to do it, if you're an elite athlete, you have to do it very carefully. Yeah. Uh, if you're an age group athlete, it can be done a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So based on the research, the um, the body really isn't able to burn fat and feed the glycogen stores in the muscles fast enough when you're doing that really extended endurance stuff, huh? Correct. Um, but that doesn't mean, again, it's always a matter of how much, how quickly can you race and require whatever the energy substrates are. Most of the, you know, there's going to be a breakdown of fat, protein, and carbohydrates in endurance events, it turns out that some 11% of your calories sometimes are derived from protein, whether it's what's taken on the fly or whether it's coming from your actual muscle catabolism. Uh, and what we want to do is we try to derive as much from fat because we know we have an almost unlimited store of body fat on us, even if we're quite thin. Uh, drive as much from fat because the problem is you cannot get, it's almost a digestive issue. I mean, ideally, I guess you could hang an IV bag off your bike and take in a glucose solution directly into the bloodstream. But, um, and that may be where it heads next. But until that happens, it's simply a matter of getting that much glucose or that much carbohydrate out of the gut and into the bloodstream to feed the muscles and to prevent the ultimate depletion of glycogen during the event. I hope I'm not getting too technical for your audience here, but it's a very interesting scientific challenge to train your body to derive so much of its energy needs from fat that you reduce that sort of rate-limiting amount of carbohydrate that you can take in. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. we could put a bug in the ear of uh, Dean Carnassus, right? Yeah. He's got some pretty good notoriety now, the ultra-marathoner. He's, he's always up for that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's, he's willing to experiment on that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, really? Because yeah, I watched one of his movies, and he's eaten like whole pizzas. Yeah, Hawaiian pizzas, <laughs> right? Large yeah. Hawaiian yeah. pizza as he's running. <laughs> that's because that's what he knows. But he's also quite willing to, uh, to take on you know, whatever it takes oh, good. To, uh, to do that. Yeah. Nice. That's great. So I guess some people are still confused on the whole grains thing because everyone says whole wheat is great and you want to avoid the bleach flowers and so forth. But as you noted on your blogs, we simply do not have the wiring necessary to mitigate the harmful effects of lectins, gluten, and phytate. Given that, why do you suppose grains are so revered in our food culture and that they predominate uh, the grocery store aisles? Uh, Well, they're cheap. They're cheap, number one. So they're a cheap source of calories that has driven the population explosion of mankind for the last 6,000 years. Um, beyond that, there's not much nutrition in grain at all of any kind. Even in whole grain, they're a poor source of vitamins, minerals, protein, even of the kinds of fiber that we would require. There's no real good reason to make grains any part of your diet except as a cheap source of calories that readily converts into glucose in the bloodstream. And when you look at grains, they're terribly, they're terrible tasting and they're bland on their own. You have to add oil, butter, jam, salt, sauce, something to grain. Sugar all over those grape nuts, right? <laughs> uh, marinara sauce on the, or, you know, Alfredo sauce on the pasta, jam and jelly on the bread. Uh, yeah. You know, a sandwich was never intended to be, the bread was never intended to be the major component of the sandwich. It was just to replace a plate. It was the first <laughs> fast food was a sandwich. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You know, you, it was just a way to hold the meat and whatever else was in there and not get your hands all greasy and kind of eat on the fly. But today, to this day, one of the first things I hear from people when I say, well, 
All you have to do is cut out the grain and your life will be 100% improved. And they say, well, what, how will I eat a sandwich? <laughs> well, you know, I haven't had a sandwich for probably 10 years. And I have a cold chicken leg instead of a sandwich. Or I have a pork chop instead of a sandwich. Or I have a salad instead of a sure. Or I have whatever was going to be on the inside of the sandwich yeah. without the bread. Exactly. Yeah. It's quite simple. And no need to slather it with the uh, soybean oil mayonnaise either, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that about, I think, wraps up all of our questions. I will definitely put all of your informational links in the show notes to your website and stuff, as well as a link I found on uh, YouTube that had you sprinting on the beach. I thought it was really cool. You were showing those. Uh, oh, my Vibram five fingers. Five yeah. fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anyone that's uh, curious to know whether Mark uh, walks the walk, he certainly does. Yeah. Or sprint the sprint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I can't wait to get your book and uh, check everything out and start changing some of the things I do and save all kinds of time and have more energy. And I guarantee it'll work for you. I mean, you just it's a little bit of a leap of faith, but understand that you know a lot of people have been doing a lot of things with erroneous assumptions for a long time. And yeah. we, we've got thousands of testimonials now. It's just very heartwarming to see all of the lives that we're changing. That's awesome. Absolutely. So thanks again, Mark. Appreciate you joining us on the show and let's keep in touch. Yeah, it's my pleasure, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. That was really cool. All right, take care. Uh, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we hope you enjoyed our interview with Mark Sisson. His primal blueprint is definitely something to take a look at. It has an incredible wealth of information. Mark has definitely done his research in an objective fashion. I really admire that. Just visit his site at marksdailyapple.com. And if you'd like to discover our unique take on healthy minds and fit bodies, just visit healthymindfitbody.com, and you'll find a link there to our book, subtitled How the Mind-Body Connection Can Help You Achieve Your Perfect Weight. And we do get into the psychological aspects of health and fitness and particularly trying to lose weight, overcoming the various self-conflicts that are going on on a subconscious level, so that you can become healthy and happy, and that's the ultimate goal here. On our website, you can also check out our blog and our podcast show notes. I have links to various things that we talk about in the shows, and kind of write some of the main points that we discuss. Feel free to comment on our episodes as we post them. And within those show notes, we also have a link to our page on iTunes, where you're free to rate and or review our show. Much appreciated. And then if you also want to download our free audio, you can just go to our website, healthymindfitbody.com, and download the three pillars. Mm-hmm. Yes. So as we've noted before, we do have some more interesting interviews coming up, so stay tuned for that. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care.